Before we start the show today, we just passed 400 episodes, people, and we'd love to hear your thoughts. Whether you listen to the show once or 400 times, we'd love it if you could leave us a review. So please, please find us on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast app is and leave us a review or a comment. But we love reading the comments the most, so help us make the show better. You can do it. All right, let's start the show. From 11FS, I'm Simon Taylor, and this is Fintech Insider News. This week we bring you N26 leaving the UK in April, Starling snatching up new funding, and Credit Suisse stuck in spying scandal. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 401 of Fintech Insider. I'm Simon Taylor, and today I'm joined by colleague and co-host, Mr. Adam Davis. How are you doing, sir? I am very well, as ever. How are you? Yeah, not too shabby. A little bit tired, a little bit of a cold, but Fintech never sleeps, so I can't sleep either. It never sleeps. It never sleeps. (laughs) There's so much going on, and we're joined by some incredible guests. Uh, Making Fintech Insider debut, we have uh, Matt Collins, who's CTO over at Curve. How are you doing, Matt? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. No, you're welcome. And of course, uh, Alexandra Frian, who's Head of Corporate Affairs over at Starling Bank. How are you doing, Alex? Oh, we're walking on air this week. <laughs> yeah, it's not a bad week. We'll get yeah. to that story soon. Uh, and making a welcome return. It's the one and only Ali Patterson, Editor-in-Chief of Fintech Finance. How are you doing, Ali? I'm fine as Andy Simon. All good your end? Yeah, living there. Um, talking through a cold, so sorry, listeners, but we'll get through this. Um, because there's some amazing stories, and the first one really caught my attention. Uh, probably, uh, I don't know if you, if you were following this on Twitter, but there was some amazing stuff about N26 closing all of their UK accounts. So on Tuesday, they announced they're going to seize operations in the UK. Uh, the company's currently passporting on its EU banking licenses, and those rights end on the 31st of December 2020. Uh, then N26 was only introduced uh, UK current accounts in October 2018, two years after the referendum, which is interesting timing. Uh, now it says the withdrawal agreement makes its proposition impossible. Currently, N26 has several hundred thousand customers, according to a spokesperson. How do we feel about this? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, the official line um, is possibly what's tipped them over the edge. Um, I think it's kind of a a capital requirements versus uh, the value of doing it is probably the decision that they've they've come to that, you know, if uh, they're going to have to... Uh, get a license in the UK with the capital requirements and all the costs that that entails. Is the value there at the moment in such a crowded market? I mean, you say quite such a crowded market versus the whole UK population, maybe not, but certainly those who are going to um, engage or have engaged in in digital challenger apps. Um, is the value there for them to to put their money into the UK versus potentially expanding what they're doing in the States. And, could and could get else. quite costly, yeah. And they're spending a lot of money on marketing in the States at the moment. They are, yes. And Ali, did you think this was a big loss for the UK ecosystem, the fintech world? I'm going to be very honest. No. I read the thing and I thought, <laughs> I call utter bullshit. There is no way. Oh, my that, God. Yeah. Go for it, Ali. <laughs> Fair enough. They're, they're blaming Brexit, yeah. first of all, which seemed very scapegoatish. Mm-hmm. Um, very good to see Bonk jump straight in with an incredible uh, uh, response to that. Yeah, I think um, they're not getting the traction in the UK. It's a very crowded market. You've got Monzo, you've got Starling, you've got, Re- you've got everybody already in the UK. It's a crowded market. They're not doing as well as they wanted to. 
that it's just easier, as you said, for them just to shut operations. And they're kind of using Brexit as a scapegoat. They didn't even need to mention Brexit there. They could have just said, we've decided to shut our operations, a bit like Fedor did. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's like just own it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Own it. Own, own your failures. It seems like they're trying. Yeah, it seems like a bit of an excuse. I remember when uh, Monzo said, oh, we launched the um, sort of uh, Monzo Plus and it hasn't worked. We're going to close that. We think it failed. Let's try again. And everybody went, ooh, that's credible. Yes, okay, yeah, it failed. And we all thought it kind of sucked. And now you've admitted that it sucked. And we kind of respect you for saying that. It's kind of the other end of the spectrum. It, yeah, I suppose the interesting thing about N26 is that um, the strategy where it differs from, let's say, Monzo is that they haven't gone very deep in any particular territory, potentially generally. I think that's a really good point. They've gone quite shallow over a lot of markets. Um, And even in Germany, they're they're still pretty shallow. So it it was, um, I have to agree with you, the the Brexit thing was um, unnecessary and probably unhelpful to them in Mm. in the long run because it sort of got people's backs up. And and Alex, sort of as you talk about the, the breadth versus depth kind of thing. What is it you think in the UK market? I mean, I know Starling's looking at moving into Ireland and, and other geographies. Uh, do you think that this is uh, something where going deep in markets and going slower is, is, a, is a stronger strategy or uh, just a different one? Well, that, that's definitely the approach of Starling. But I think you've got to realise that, that, that people have very complicated relationships with money and they're cultural and they're personal and not the banking market and the banking culture is different in every country. So you can't just cut and paste the same sort of marketing approach from territory to territory. You've got to understand the local market that you're going into and adapt to that. And I think if you don't do that, um, you're going to come up with this kind of, you'll hit your head against a brick wall and then you'll have to take a big decision. Do you relaunch? Do you repackage? Or do you pull out? It's interesting that historically Santander actually did that quite well in that they had the one two three account which has been tremendously successful for them but they would roll it out country by country year after year but it, it wasn't sort of uh, 10 countries in one year with with passporting there was a, there was a timing difference there Matt. I do, was, I, sorry let me just interrupt because i've got this i do remember when santander first launched in the uk um just before that account um going on their corporate website and they'd obviously just put it through Google Translate to get it into <laughs> <Yeah>. English. And <laughs> it's Solid. They've, cl- they've cleaned it up now, but it was really... Um, right. So it was like, different at very first. <laughs> at the last minute, someone said, oh, damn, we've got to do the website. Oh, Google Translate. Wow. That's, that's a great story. <laughs> Matt, what are your thoughts about N26 here? Uh, well, I mean, not only the marketing needs to be different in each geography or market, but the, the product perhaps needs to change as well. So I, I wonder if they found it hard to um, get market share where there was already a sort of quite advanced you know, com- um, challenger bank sort of ecosystem in place. Um, mm, I think it's a good point. I mean, there was a heavy spend on marketing. I think everybody remembers the adverts. I mean, if you're listening in the US at the moment, you can't escape N26 advertising. York, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah it, it's, it's kind of everywhere. Um, but is that turning into conversion? And actually, marketing without product that follows through is is can be wasted spend quite easily. It's going to drive interest, but is it going to drive activation? I think well, it's always a different question. I, I think it's a lot less um, advanced market over in the US, so there's a lot more to go for mm. uh, and a lot less competition to compete with. Yeah, potentially, so, but you know, Chime have nearly 6 million users and we'll come on to Varro later who've just got their own charter. I mean, the, the US market's really changing. N26, I think it's quarter of a million they've managed to get in. So I'm going to say six months, someone's going to disprove me, but it's... 
Again, it's a marketing spend. It's a market, you know, how many of those are out? It's the same questions that you get over and over again when people release num- uh, customer acquisition numbers. It's, you know, how many are active? What's the deposits? What's the features actually? Because I think going from yeah. um, one country to another country in the way that they've done, um, they've actually sort of, the, the proposition that they've launched with has got less and less from a feature perspective. Some of that's due to regulation, some of it's not, but it's it's actually what's the, if you look at how skinny the app is across the world, it's... An interesting point, questions. actually, like what defines being launched because it's, it's apples to oranges otherwise. And, and if you think about the feature set of a lot of the digital challenges in the UK, you know, it's quite deep and quite broad at this point, but it's not necessarily the same that you would see even from some of the high street banks, some by choice, right? Do you really need a checkbook? There are some things that a certain segment doesn't want as much or can be solved in different ways. But that feature set thing is quite an interesting thing to play with. And what's the definition of an active customer? It would be interesting to have an industry benchmark on that because I know inside of some big banks that I've seen, there are some really creative definitions of, you know, has used, has logged into one of our services in the last 120 days, even if it's just to view the account. Oh, they're active. I'm like, that's pretty broad, but it has made a payment in the last seven days or has done something transactional in the last month, the, that monthly active user thing might be might be more interesting. Well, I think it depends you know, which, uh, which sort of user you're after as well, yeah. because um, you know, for, for banks, is it number of accounts, amount deposited, you know, an amount of transacted volume? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it was always the, the size of the deposit book and the net interest margin was the tra- traditional balance sheet measurement, but there are different ways to get there. And I think that depends on your strategy. So there are nuances there. Yeah, and I think uh, it's a bit like you know, in uh, in product or engineering, you, you, you use velocity to improve a team over time, but you can't use it to compare teams. So, mm-hmm. yeah, having a comparable metric is only really useful for pundits as opposed to the... The, for the building, the, the, yeah, the, uh, the entity really itself. Point. Have really you guys at uh, Starling had a nice little spike of uh, increased signups following N26's announcement? Well, we have had a nice spike in signups, but we've also been in the news a lot yeah. this week because we've given shares to all our employees, we've raised money, and so forth. So there's a, there's been a lot of things go on, but yes, we have. And we shall come to precisely that point in a moment. But Ali, just before we do, um, there was something nice that Bunk did. Do you want to uh, just take us oh, through yeah. that? Do you know actually? We just want to take a moment to appreciate all the challenger banks on social media because they've been. I curved did one about an hour ago, which is just it just made me laugh. Uh, but definitely look those up. Um, it, what did Bunk say? They said Bunk said you might have heard one of our fintech peers is leaving the UK. Fear not, Bunk is here to stay. Based on the current rules and regulations, we see no regulatory reason to leave the UK. In fact, we love you guys. Let's bunk together. Uh, founder of CEO of Bunk. That's nice. I like that. I like that. <laughs> can, can I do? I will actually just ask anyone's opinion on this. So, given the reason that they've uh, that they're going to exit the market is down to Brexit, uh, cost of becoming a regulated entity here. Do we see that as prohibitive? I guess for other challenges in the same spot. So those who haven't yet got their full license or are going through the process or haven't actually started the process, but are sort of you know hitching on someone else's or whatever it is. Because there is actually, whilst you've got ambiguity for the next twelve months, mm-hmm. ambiguity probably favours you if you if you haven't gone through that process yet. Eventually, there will come a point where you need to make a decision whether you're going to stick or twist. I guess it depends how you want to do market entry because the UK has some interesting things, doesn't it? It has Clearbank who can give you direct clearing access. We have 
folks like Form 3 who can give oh, you yeah. payments access. So, like, the cost of entry doesn't necessarily mean having a full banking license immediately. Uh, and I think that's actually been a lot of what made the challenges successful is this supplier ecosystem that's that's entirely different. So, you know, do you need to go straight through the, the Bank of England licensing regime or can you build up a customer base with something slightly different? Or do you need to be a bank at all? Yeah. Like, well. you know, Curves are EMI, yeah. um, which has, you know, much... The capital requirements are non-existent, so you know, it's um, uh, it's a much simpler simpler play. Depends and what it, your strategy is, right? I indeed. think it ultimately comes to that. And I think if you get creative about market entry, maybe there are fun things to do. But um, we're going to move to the next story, and uh, yeah, let's get there now. So the next story comes from TechCrunch, and this is Starling nabbing apparently $60 million in additional funding. Um, but rather than talk about this myself, I might as well just throw it to you, Alex. What, what, what happened here? Well, we um, secured uh, further backing from our existing investors, uh, Marion Global and uh, JTC, which is the uh, vehicle of Harry McPike, our, our very first investor. So we um, regard this as an endorsement in what we're doing. Our customer numbers um, uh, keep going up. We're really excited. And, um, you know, we, we're, we're on a roll right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- this money is just you know, enabling us to keep growing and to keep um, adding features. Uh, what is interesting, what stood out to me is some of the announcements about, um, to the point that Matt made earlier, of, of the uh, deposits versus account numbers. It's almost sort of, uh, there's 1.25 million accounts and 1.25 billion in deposits. Those numbers seemed weirdly <laughs> even <laughs> and close. I'm sure that's a statistical... It's a, it's a coincidence. We did check. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wrote it down in the office and everyone goes, you've, you've made a typo, Alex. And I said, no, no, they are the, they are the same. But, but it's an interesting point is, you know, we, we've got, um, I noticed that Monzo put out um, their sort of roundup for 2019 and they had 1.2 billion in deposits at the end of 2019. Yeah. We had 1.25 billion by the end of January 2020. So um, we've got different customer profiles. Different customer profiles, um, I think, is is key in different use cases. And, and, and I think that's actually a good thing for the market, right, that people are playing in different spaces. But a lot of the, the traditional banking world talks about how you're going to build your sort of deposit book and actually those are meaty deposit books by um, by by banking standards um, so that's kind of credit to to all involved um, I guess for everybody else in the room do you think that we'll see uh, other challenger banks continue to get funding rounds alley and do we think um, that this is kind of gonna show any signs of slowing soon we got a little bet in our office about this because mm. I think um, I think Softbank is eventually going to back Monzo over Revolut. And I think it's going to be quite uh, an eye-catching headline. I think SoftBank's going to go for one of the two. Yeah. Um, but I'm looking forward to that uh, to that press release. But um, just as an aside, would you want SoftBank in your cap table right now, given all the news coming out about them? I mean, I think it's different 12 months ago. It'd be ago. good for SoftBank. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Who's it better for? SoftBank or Monzo? SoftBank or Revolut? You know, it's... Depends who needs the needs the funds. Mm. Um, I just want to quickly go back to one of the things about the Starling announcement. Yeah. Um, seven years of my life I spent working at John Lewis and Waitrose, um, and one of the best things about that was as an employee, you get shares in there, and that made such a difference. And the fact that at Starling you get shares as an employee, the difference that's going to make to, to morale, to culture, to customer experience is is huge. I'm a, I'm a big advocate of that. Is is it shares or is it options that people are getting? The shares, the okay. shares. We um, no, this is something that Anne and Bowden, our founder, you know, was 
believes passionately in and has worked very hard for this. And, you know, we told staff on Monday and uh, this morning um, uh, we had a breakfast where we have company-wide breakfast and everyone was able to talk about it together. We're really, really excited to do it. You know, at today's valuation, those shares are worth just under £3,000 and every single one of our employees who's completed their probation will get them. They'll have to complete four years with us. Yeah. Um, there is that. Yeah. And right now we don't have an exit, so... Mm-hmm. But it's it's still paper at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, but within four years... Um, There'll, there'll be some kind of exit either happened or on the horizon. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of giving people that thing to work towards, which I think is really, really powerful and credit to everybody involved, I think. I, I think it's great. I mean, at, at Curve, we uh, we make sure that all of our employees have equity options as well. Um, again, options are easier to deal with in terms of mm-hmm. vesting periods and all the rest mm-hmm. of it. But um, it makes, makes all of the uh, employees feel like they own part of the business. Yeah. And so yeah, yeah, it's, 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 a great, business. it's a great motivator. Absolutely. Got my investor card coming as well from Curve as well. Yeah. <laughs> so you do actually own part of this. Uh, yeah. How, how many of those <laughs> investor cards do you now have, oh, Ali? No, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a wall at the moment. Yeah, you, that would make a really nice little collage at some point, I'm sure. Where, where do we think this leaves the uh, sort of broader challenger bank space in the UK in the context of Brexit? I mean, no sign of slowing down, but are the big banks sort of starting to react in an interesting way? Are we seeing um, kind of interesting things, um, Adam, from um, them starting to do different things, different strategies? Um, and, you know, they, their sort of um, results season is coming on as soon. Is it going to be good thing or bad thing post-Brexit for, for the big banks? I think it will look... Um I don't know if Brexit at the moment will have that much of an implication. I, th- I think uh, it would be positive, but I don't think that anyone's reacted to, we say it every week, I don't think anyone's reacted to the sort of the, the rise of the challenger banks in a particularly interesting way other than just to copy. Um, and how many of those have been successful across the big floor and others? Not many. Um, I think for, from, you know, you, you spoke about earlier about will funding continue to, to come into UK fintech? I think the answer to that is is yes. I think if you look at the amount of customers who have a challenger account, if you like, or a neobank account, it's what, 14, 15 million people in the UK out of a 60, 70 million uh, population. Still, I know that's from European standards, even worldwide standards, that's still a very high metric and percentage, which is great, but there's still a long way to go. Um, so the prize is still there to be had, both here and obviously abroad. And this is still the best regulator in theory. It's still the, you know, the leading light. So... I think from a, an ecosystem perspective, nothing's really changes. I think the, the incumbents still need to um, develop a winning proposition, quite frankly, which they haven't done The UK yet. still feels like a petri dish because of that supply of vendor landscape and the mixture of regulation that sits with, underneath it. But also it's a petri dish because uh, that sort of ability to execute and get things in the hands of customers as a result of those vendors, as a result of that regulation, means that if you were going to start somewhere, it's an interesting place to start. But it means that you've got to get that proposition right sort of I think getting the basics right no longer is enough or copying features can be enough for, for some places but it comes a lot more to uh, not what you do but how you do it and that ability to create feature velocity but also uh, have that customer feedback loop that's really really powerful in a way that I think has historically not been the DNA of, of some organizations but I think also when you're talking about the big banks you know if, if they're going to compete with us that Everything they do, they're doing on top of their legacy infrastructure, on on top of their legacy um, cost base. And processes and, 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 and culture. And, and, and their culture. Um, you know, I think it's interesting that, um, you know, Mark Bailey described himself as a founder 
of Bo. Well, he isn't the founder. He hasn't got skin in the game. You know, if it goes under, he'll just go back to his corner office or not. Um, and um, it's it's not it's not the same existential, mm-hmm. um, you know, risk out there. I think there's something that's about really important. Um, that fandom mentality in the early days of an organisation when the money runs out, that's it. You've yes. got to go get a job. That's we, that's scary. We, we yeah. say it all the time with for the banks that we're building here. Uh, some are for uh, incumbents, some aren't. Some are startups, and I think the um, the number one thing that we always say is that if if the certainly the founding team on the client side, because obviously we work with clients, um, need to have that skin of the game. Otherwise, the pressure's just not there to build. Um, and, and we've got that in a lot of instances on the propositions that we're building. But if you don't, because I've seen both sides, I've been involved in both sides, uh, and you can just see, you know, you mentioned before developer velocity, even getting down to those kind of specific metrics, it yeah. makes a massive impact. It does. And it's not what you do, it's the way you do it. Kind of, that's what we mean by that, in that uh, how do you create that sense of urgency of like, once the money's gone this is gone and for some folks in big banks it's just this works much more enjoyable than my day job and I'm creating a new culture but there can be more to it than that and there are interesting incentive structures that, that sort of fit around that and you think about people with uh, families that not, couldn't necessarily take a risk to leave the salaried job to to go do something interesting but have a, a really interesting sort of entrepreneurial streak to them there's interesting things in there but that's that's a bit of a falsehood isn't it in that um yeah, you can you can go and work at a startup with a family and have mouths to feed, and then whether it works or it doesn't, you're still you employable. Can, you can go get another job I, somewhere I, I else. I think so. sort of founding a startup that doesn't have certain runway externally with a small bit of cash or your own cash is still a different thing to working at a startup that's got 10 million, 50 million in funding. That, that is a slightly different thing. Um, and it's that sort of founder mentality of that that thing that doesn't exist yet from scratch. That's a little bit different. And when, once you've got liftoff as a founder, you know, all those people, you've created those jobs. Look at all the jobs that Tom has created at Monzo. Look at the job that Anne has created at Starling. Yeah. These are people now, that now depend yeah. on the company and you really care about keeping them in their jobs. Absolutely. And um, I I just can't see that you have that that sort of visceral connection with your employees if ultimately you're both em- all employed by a big bank. Indeed. I, I think with the big banks it's a completely different it's a completely different cultural way of thinking when thinking entrepreneurially. Entrepreneurially is that the right word? As, yeah, as an entrepreneur. That rocks. You can do it. Um, <laughs> We, you can wear that well, Ali. Entrepreneurially. <laughs> um, we did an amazing interview with Amy McCleary over in Bank of Ireland, a lot of branch infrastructure, and she was basically saying, I'm in charge of the branch network, and my competitor now is not other banks. My competitor is WeWork, because I want all of our startups to basically use us as a hub. So you've got all these SMEs now going to branches in Bank of Ireland. It's just a different... You it's see this different way of thinking. Barclays so, have so started doing yeah, this. Nationwide have started yeah. to do this. I think it's a smart strategy, and actually, uh, it's a way to make the branches bring in high-value customers. Those SMEs are hugely high-value customers, and I think it's a good way to use that space, especially when we work itself may not have a business model that works, but banking is a pretty proven business model. Listen, I'm sure we could go on about this one. I've got to move us to the next story. Um, This is about Revolut rolling out their open banking feature, and it's letting UK customers aggregate their bank account information in the Revolut app. Uh, Businesses and consumer customers can access the feature, which is a result of a partnership with Truelair. Um, And the FCA lets Revolut access open banking APIs, but the company isn't yet authorized to transfer funds or make payments. So it's an AISP, not a PISP in the lingo. Um, So what do you think when you saw this one? A couple of you had a play with it. Uh, what were your thoughts? 
Um, I've had a play with it. I think uh, the UX is pretty slick, mm. but um, you know it is it is read only, and you know, we we're looking to do read and write. So mm. um, the the PISP part of open banking still hasn't got to the point of being particularly useful. I think at the moment the UX is pretty horrific. No worries. Um, but but the uh, the Revolut implementation is it looks pretty nice. Yeah, it's the, uh, from a from a UI perspective, it's one of it's probably one of the best I've seen. Saying that, it, from a functionality perspective, although they give you a couple of new views and whatever else, it's still the same. Customers still haven't really reacted. I mean, I'm a massive advocate of open banking, as as anyone who listens to this will know. But I think the customers haven't reacted to the aggregation use case uh, in an enormous way. It's not going to change the dial. What it feels like, we said it just before um, we started rolling. I think what it feels like is that this is um, they've sort of got to this on their roadmap, if you like. So now they've got some sort of developer capacity, and they're like, right now is the time. I don't think it's been driven by anything particularly that's going to move the market. Um, and I think if you look at what the future of open banking will be, which I know we, we might touch upon in a sec, things like open finance and whatever else, that's when the dial might get shifted or when the PISP journey actually becomes uh, usable. But it feels like it's sort of a reaction just to the fact Account that Account data aggregation is just not exciting and lots of other people have been doing it for a while unless it solves a problem for a customer. Uh, and I think there's something quite nice in this UX feature that, that we were looking at earlier where you can sort of, uh, it's integrated to the feed. You can scroll through it and yeah, see it. Nice. That, like, yeah, yeah. There's some yeah. nice touches here. So credit to them for getting it done. Two fintechs, in theory, partnering. Um, you know, credit to Trueleft for, for kind of getting there and showing what what this stuff can really, really do. Um, Ali, what what are your thoughts on this one? I need to re-sign into my Revolut app uh, <laughs> yeah. to be able to try, to try that. Do you uh, think it's going to be a customer acquisition route, or is this like a um, thing that they did on the steps to doing more stuff? I think it might be customer acquisition. I think if you then bring in all of your stuff in one go, you can look at it and go, actually, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to use more. It's quite a confidence play from them yeah. because you can see what all of their competitors are doing. Mm-hmm. And they and they're. I don't really know where I'm going with this. Yeah, yeah. But I'll, there's I'll something. The I think it's the nice U, UX piece, right? There's that nice UX could be a reason why I use that as my primary account mm. rather than something else. That's an interesting point. I think that's where you're going. That's where I was going. Yeah, I'll, I'll, totally. I'll, I'll that's where that. you were going. I'll play with that. Alex, any thoughts? I just think it's a nice to have. I don't see this as driving growth, but mm. um, uh, I might be wrong. Yeah, I, it, it looks like a hygienic sort mm. of feature. Um, but uh, yeah, I think open banking to fulfil its potential, it needs to get things like variable re- recurring payments yeah. fixed. You know, the um, it's the payment side that's the yeah. going to be the the thing that makes it click for customers. I think. Yeah, I mean, I think that there has been some nice use cases in quite niche. Um, I suppose uh, nice use cases and niche use cases that doesn't really make sense but there's been like there's been a lot of applications of it around credit scoring and mm-hmm. authentication things like that which is nice yeah where you're using the data to do a thing exactly. rather than just yeah. aggregating it's data good at that and that's actually much more interesting yeah the other thing I like about this is the uh, business customers can access it you don't see a lot of business customer data stuff and actually you think about how much more important uh, data is to business customers when you're integrating with accounting and you've got to think about your cash flow and there's there's tools like Fluidly out there that, that do bits and pieces of this, but it's quite nice seeing it inside of the of the banking experience. And Revolut have done a lot in that space. There's a wonderful uh, example of this done so right. There's a great little company called uh, Invocap that do um, uh, SME financing, but you've got to upload. Traditionally, you've got to upload your statements every single month. Uh, yeah, def- definitely look them up. Yeah, I'm doing that now. Um, but you can now, I think, I can't remember who does it, but you can link up all of your business accounts to it and you can link up to zero. Um, and so you, you can draw down 
within seconds of accessing it. I'm a big, 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 big fan of those guys. That is a really good nerdy tip. <laughs> Anybody doing SME banking things. <laughs> I will just give a shout out on this story to TrueLayer and the TSPs in general. Every time I hear that there's another market looking to either emulate open banking or take the best bits from it, I immediately think, my God, like the TSPs are cleaning up. <laughs> One market after another is unbelievable. Like they, um, the business model, uh, which was, I guess, built on shaky ground a few years ago because the requirements were just like so appallingly drafted mm. in the first iteration of them anyway. Um, but my word, they've done well. Mm-hmm. Shout out to those guys. Alrighty, um, we'll be back shortly, but it's time to take a quick break. This podcast is brought to you by Stake, the digital brokerage app bringing you unrivaled access to the US market. Invest in over 3,500 US stocks and ETFs, including game-changing companies like Google, Amazon, and Tesla. Trading is instant, direct, and commission-free. With a fully digitized sign-up, you'll be in the market in minutes. Visit hellostake.com or search Stake Trade to seize the US market's $31 trillion worth of opportunity to date. What? <laughs> in your pocket straight away. <laughs> yeah, just get all of that 31 trillion people. Um Adam, uh, we were involved in writing a report recently um, about how to build a bank. We wanted to put together um, just kind of all of the things we've learned over the many, many years of doing it for different people, written for, I guess, uh, companies large and small that are looking to do stuff. We were talking earlier about um, you can do the EMI license route, you can look to do something card first, you can look to do something clear bank first. um, But what are the general approaches and principles that we've learned along the way of doing it? So um, I think if there's one thing to take away from that report, it's uh, whoever you are, there might be a slightly different approach, but there are some good lessons learned along the way from people who've done it before. So um, you can find out how to build truly digital propositions. Head over to bit.ly forward slash how to build a bank to download your copy. Is it easy to build a bank? Um, well, I mean, you've got to download the report to find out. It's bit.ly forward slash how to build a bank. <laughs> I can't Ask tell him another you question, you'll get a similar answer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, back on with the news. Um, the next story comes from Bloomberg, and apparently Visa are going to make the biggest interchange adjustment in decades. According to internal documents, credit card company will raise fees for e-commerce clients. Meanwhile, retailers in sectors like real estate and education will see rates drop. The changes will be rolled out in a two-part implementation process, which will happen in April and October. MasterCard won't comment on whether or not it's considering a similar move. Adam, why are interchange um, movements so, so, so important? Oh, wow. Um <laughs> Well, it, it's part of what we call MSC, Merchant Service Charges, uh, which incorporates more than just the interchange. Uh, interchange is the money that goes to Visa and MasterCard in the payments flow. There's also the issuing bank who connects the majority of it. There's merchant acquirers. and So this is what, if, sorry, I built a shop what, or an e-commerce yes. store and this is what I pay for taking payments. Exactly that. This is what your uh, your regular Joe, well, it doesn't necessarily need to be a regular Joe, but let's just assume it's your, uh, mm. your guy around the, sto- um, the corner in the convenience store has to pay to accept Visa or MasterCard. So in the US at the moment, the card not present fees are moving on a $100 transaction are going to $1.99 from $1.90. And for the premium Visa cards, that's going from $2.60 and it's dropping down to $2.50. So it seems like um, there's definitely some movements around card not present. And historically, there's been a lot of fraud in card not present. And card not present being, I've gone to a website, I've typed in my long number, my expiry and my CVV. So and you see see a whole bunch of fraud there. So is, is this covering the cost of that fraud, do we think? Well, cynically, it's uh, it's following the trend of people to buy more stuff online, isn't it? Yeah. And Visa taking a bigger cut. But. Well, so there's been, 
Yeah, I, 100%. Um, uh, I think those numbers, 199 from 190, you know, in the UK where interchange is a lot lower than that, they're yeah, like high water. It's capped by regulation. It's capped by regulation for debit and credit. Um, to a lot of those, like 20, 30 bips, that's mm. it. So this is like, you know, cra- crazy, crazy amounts. But even in um, MSC charges, regardless of interchange, but the total fees do change if you're a big boy or if you're a small player. So, you know, Square entered the market about 1.75% here, flat fee. And and it depends, you know, it, it is within the rights of, you know, the payment providers, if you like, if you get all the payment ecosystem to, to, set, to set different rates. Yeah. Um, that said... Uh, the number one thing that you know all merchants always complain about whenever we do uh, customer research, and I've been involved in merchant acquiring before, is always you know the state of interchange rates. Yeah, it, it feels like a tax on selling stuff to your customers, um, but it pays for the payment infrastructure. So there's always that question of like, is it too much? Um, you know, the the retailers always say, yes, it's too much. It's damaging my business, and, it, and it's hard. And the the payments companies say, well, I need to wait for pay for all of this infrastructure that that allows this global almost instant payment capability. So, uh, Ali, do you have any thoughts on this? It's uh, it's nerding out time. Well, it is. I mean. <laughs> I, uh, it's no secret I'm a massive fan of Curve, so for me it makes no difference whatsoever because I'm going to be using my Mastercard, uh, mm-hmm. even if it's even, even if I'm using my Visa card, just through the uh, through Curve. Give it a month. If Mastercard follows suit, then uh, interchange fees, especially yeah. for people who are doing card arbitrage. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I did think was interesting is this announcement happened. Um, there has been apps. It's the share price of Visa stagnant. You would expect after something like this a nice little spike or drop, depending. Absolutely stagnant. It's gone up five percent since the new year. I'll have you know. Yeah, well, that, that's probably more the plaid thing, though, isn't it? Uh, possibly. I was plaid. Yeah, plaid was this year, wasn't it? Plaid was just about this year. Yeah. yeah so that probably had more to do with the, moving the price than than this sort of stuff. Any other thoughts on this one, folks? Yeah. The um, the impact of this is going to be felt mostly by the small and medium sized retailers, not the big guys, because mm-hmm. the big guys have their sort of own custom negotiation with Visa around uh, interchange. So, mm. you know, th- this is only going to sort of hurt the little guys. I will add one more, just just one more thought. Um, so it's okay, interesting. Okay, Colombo. <laughs> yeah. uh, so the Durban agreement, which came in in the US, which did cap interchange, this is going on about 10 years ago or so, but it only capped swipes of card present transactions, yes. which means you've kind of got free reign on card not present transactions. That's when you don't present your card when you make a payment, um, which is why they can probably get away with this kind of fluctuating cost. Oh, The US market and the Durban Amendment, are there's fun to be had in that. And actually, the challenger bank space and the EMI space in the US becomes very, very different, which with Marquetta and Galileo and others in the market in the US and constantly surprised we haven't seen a lot more EMI players there because you know, basically yeah. Chime have built a, a six million customer business on, on something quite similar, um, largely uh, sitting on, on a different charter, but with the fact that Interchange is much, much more revenue generating as a business than it would be um, in, in Europe. So there's a much better business model and prize there if you can find your way into the market. Yeah, yeah I think the, the lack of regulation cuts both ways there, though. So you you miss out on any protection that the regulation offers, mm-hmm. but you also, you know, it's, it's sort of slightly wild west in that regard. 
It, it is in some good ways too. Um, and speaking of the U.S. market, um, Vara Money have received FDIC approval. Um, the company's in place to get its first national bank charter ever awarded to a fintech firm. The um, Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, you're down with OCC, um, gave Vara preliminary approval for a charter back in October. Uh, the company's been seeking said charter for the past three years. Actually, I saw a tweet from Shamir Karkul, who was the former founder of Simple, that they've actually been seeking it since 2009. Um, according to American Banker, the process has cost the company $100 million so far, and they still need to pass an exam for the OCC, and final approval is expected in Q2. But uh, for more from this, let's actually hear from uh, 11FS North American managing partner, Sam Moore. U.S. Challenger Bank Borrow Money has made a big splash in the news this week with the announcement that they've received approval from the FDIC for deposit insurance. This is a big deal as it puts VARA one step closer to acquiring their U.S. National Bank Charter. And let's be clear here, this is the holy grail for U.S. challenger banks on their quest for profitability. With this charter, VARA will be able to accept and hold deposits insured by the FDIC, but more importantly, they can move into products such as credit cards and lending. In other words, they can start making money. One part of this story really stands out to me, and it's this. Experience matters. I find it telling that VARO's founder and CEO, Colin Walsh, is an industry veteran. He has over 20 years of work experience with stints at Lloyd's and American Express. I'm confident his baking background is critical to VARO's success, but I'm equally confident his industry contacts were instrumental in the process. The bottom line is this. Industry experience is a holy grail when it comes to building out your fintech company's team. You need to look for a combination of folks who have financial services knowledge, contacts, and know the potential roadblocks a company run into in this highly regulated space. Even Varro ran into this issue, as American Banker notes. Varro received conditional approval from the OCC for a national bank charter back in September 2018, but the company said shortly afterward it withdrew its application with the FDIC to give it time to fill key posts with experienced leaders to address concerns the agency had. Now, will this be a pivotal moment in American banking? Time will tell. Varro CEO Walsh stated he believes it'll achieve profitability next year, Trust me, the entire industry will be watching to see if they can pull this off too. Shout out to Sam. Great points there about the experience, Alex. I think that um, often gets underlooked in the world of fintech that the the role experience can and having contacts in the industry that can can sort of be uh, sherpas and guides through some of the regulatory space that and how that gives confidence to regulators. Well, it's particularly in the US, which is a very very conservative market uh, for banking, where the regulators, uh, the federal regulators, are all powerful mm-hmm. and very close to the the big banks, uh, um, that's, I think that's, that's where it, it's, it's really, really important. But I saw this story and um, I just wanted to have a little straw poll around the table. Um, can you remember when you last wrote a check? No. Do you remember? Do you, have you even had a checkbook ever, Ali? I actually one time got one of those giant checks from, from a Lloyd's branch. I went there and said, can, can I have one of those like giant checks? And they just handed it over. Really? Uh, you can just a, go and ask yeah, for Yeah. Uh, this is a few years ago, but it was definitely... Did you do a, this as a video piece of content? No, th- th- this, oh God, this is, this is school days. 
Wow. So, okay. Please do that as a video piece of content. I would love oh, to see. Like, let's let's Everybody go to let's go, go and ask for a giant check. Yeah. Let's just go to your local branch. I'm got sorry if you work in a branch, by the way, and you're <laughs> listening to this, and people start walking in asking for a giant check. <laughs> I haven't seen that. The machines won't take it. Though. Yeah. Blame <laughs> Ali entirely. You do check imaging. No, but I. I I asked that question for a point. So this week, I, yeah, I used to live in America. I go there a lot. I have a U.S. bank account. I wanted to transfer some money to a friend of mine who's English but also lived in the U.S., has a U.S. bank account. Um, she doesn't have Venmo, mm-hmm. so I couldn't use Venmo. I had to write her a check or pay a wire transfer fee to transfer the money from my bank to her bank. And... Um, I wasn't going to pay a wire fee for that. Um, I thought it was ridiculous. So um, I had to write a check. I don't have a checkbook. So I had to get my bank in America to send her a check. It it was ridiculous when you think how easy it is mm-hmm. in the UK. You go on your app, two all, seconds all later, Venmo, you've done it. Square cash, right? Ab- absolutely. So um, this is fam- fabulous. This this is, as you know, he says it's the holy grail. It's you know, please just, you know, move the whole mm. U.S. banking market on and the regulators need to get with it. Also, they've paid for that holy grail. So <laughs> this, this, that's $100 million <laughs> of holy grail I mean, right there. That's, so they've got uh, 750,000 registered users, uh, 50 million deposited into savings, and they've spent $100 million on getting a license. That is some deep pockets. Uh, long-term investors, you should say. Yeah. Well, interesting, though, that um, does this set a precedent? Do you think we'll see more of this as a result? Will Chime follow? Will N26 follow? Will it make any difference for folks like that? I'm seeing Ali shake his head. Possibly. I mean, one of the things that um, Vara has done, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that they forked out quite a hefty amount of money onto their uh, technology stack. Mm-hmm. I think they're with Temenos T24, um, which is great. Quite, it's, it's, it's good value, but it's still quite expensive. And I imagine that 100 million, quite a chunk of that is on their core infrastructure, which is very easy to regulate as opposed to building something from scratch. Yeah, I mean, there's always that trade-off between something that people have seen work here before versus something smaller that does just what you need and um, and is more flexible and modular. It seems like uh, the UK regulator has a bit of a different perspective on that to say the Australian or, or the US regulators a bit more comfortable with cloud-based microservices architectures that are either built in house or or come from different platform vendors. Um, so interesting to see if the Chimes and the N26 of the world, you know, so I think N26 in Europe at least is based on Mambu as its back end. You know, would that be the same in the US and would that be something that they could get approved at any stage? So be interesting to watch those platform kind of dynamics start to start to play out in the US. No more thoughts on this one. We'll move to the next story. Um, story comes from the FT, and apparently Chinese investment in Silicon Valley has slowed down. Uh, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent only invested $560 million in 12 companies last year. Only $560 million. Pocket change. <laughs> but in 2015, those tech giants provided $4.7 billion. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's quite a drop, actually. Um, and so uh, there's interesting line here from uh, the FT where uh, how Capital's Charles Liu uh, attributed the drought to increased scrutiny from the uh, Committee on Foreign Investment in the US and said many Chinese investors have decided it's not worthwhile waiting for over a a year for a CFUS review and end up with a no instead of uh, and have abandoned dealing with the US. Um, 
I mean, this is trade war piece, but do we think it's going to actually impact influx into fintech, into tech? Is it going to make a real difference to the the funding sort of world? Um, or is this sort of uh, just a sign of the times? I think it has made a difference. I mean, the, the differences between what these companies, the bats have put into uh, fintech in the States, because that's kind of what this is linked to yeah. versus what it is now, that's a massive difference. I think it's interesting. I think, you know, Ant Financial, Alibaba's um, the parent of it, uh, Ant Financial's investments have now centered more regionally. So they've got a huge, I think, Indian fund of about a billion or so that they're investing into that. Um, and they're making loads and loads of other acquisitions from a fintech perspective more locally, uh, local to, to China. Um so there, there was anyway, I think, a shift in their policy to or policy, whatever strategy, whatever you want to call it, to invest in more, um, I suppose, uh, eastern based companies. Yeah. If you're going to do sort of an east west. Um, but I think uh, th- there's no way that this isn't a geopolitical issue. I mean, it's like it's 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 all over this. Do you think we'll see an adjustment of strategies of, of people adjusting to where their, their funding and funding sources come from? I mean, I think for Starling, you've had the, the same funders over and over again, so it's probably a slightly different um, perspective. But um, surely less capital is, is a bad thing for entrepreneurs. It is, absolutely. And, you know, it, it, this is highly political. And th- those um, uh, Committee on Funding uh, of Overseas Investment I can never remember what CFIUS stands for. But those inquiries can can drag on for months. They can last up to a year. They, they take a lot of time. Um, and this this is just so political. And it's cyclical as well. You know, particularly with the Trump administration, the wind keeps changing direction. And um, some of these trends will change direction as, as that happens. I suspect so. All right. Um, speaking uh, of uh, interesting and topical things, um, our and finally story this week is uh, – Credit Suisse boss removed after a spying scandal. Um, so six months after the spying allegation surfaced, the bank has pushed out CEO, um, I don't know how to say this name, Tijani Tiam. Does anybody else want to have another crack at that? No, you're all shaking your heads at me. Thanks for that. Just drop me right in it. That's awesome. Uh, last year, news broke that the Credit Suisse uh, COO, Pierre uh, Olivier Bou, had hired a private detective to follow a senior banker who uh, had gone to UBS. Um, and of course, the COO was close to the CEO, who was immediately defended by the bank's board. Uh, but then in December, the bank admitted that private detectives had, in fact, spied on another Credit Suisse employee. Last week, it emerged that the former COO's head of security had infiltrated Greenpeace after the group protested a 2017 Credit Suisse annual meeting. Um, and How Swiss paranoid G- have you got to be to, like, infiltrate Greenpeace? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> what? These guys, this is Swiss banking we're talking about. Mm-hmm. I don't know why you're surprised. You well, know, it's 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 notoriously secretive, and there's a lot we don't know about what goes on. Um, uh, I also don't think this is about spying. I think this is about a long-running dispute between an establishment chairman and a uh, uh, parvenu CEO who's not Swiss establishment. They've got their nice Swiss CEO back um, uh, the outside has been booted out, and um, kind of makes last week's story about traders stealing sandwiches a bit tame, doesn't it? I <laughs> <laughs> Do was on a serious salary, though. Yeah, <laughs> it's a lot of salaries to be stealing sandwiches, but uh, like, um, I mean, may I just point out yeah. before I get sued that um, <laughs> uh, 
Mr. Tian was not booted out, he resigned. Yes. This is a good point of clarity. Good retraction. <laughs> For the avoidance of doubt, those are probably your own opinions, not those of the company you represent as well, right? right. Um, or 11FS. Indeed. Uh, let's just back say. away from the Swiss <laughs> with spies for a change second, the subject, shall we? Change the subject. They, they've got spies. They probably listen to podcasts because they've got ears everywhere. It's Yeah, it's kind of nuts. But, like, how do you, do you think this damages the uh, credibility of the, the Swiss banking industry and the private banking industry? Because I think wealth generally has been something that's been seen as very elitist, very in the distance, very old money. And actually, the problems of how to build my capital, how to retire, uh, are much more universal than that. Probably does it a favor for the elite, <laughs> I think. <laughs> Allegedly. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, that if you... if. Your bank isn't spying on people. How can you trust it to really, really look after your money? Like, seriously. Place your strengths. The, do, do you want your bank to have spies? I mean, you know who to go to right now. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, that's our unfinally story for this week. Thank Killing you. every opportunity we're ever going to have to work with Credit Suisse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, just covering a this story. This a bank that was fined for tax, helping its customers evade tax. Not avoid tax, but evade tax. They got, you know, two point something billion dollar fine mm-hmm. in the US for this. Let's remember Bank's gonna that. Bank's going to bank. Um, that wraps up this week's news show. Uh, thank you so much to all of our guests. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Ali? Um, well, I just want to give a quick shout out to my team because on the day that this podcast goes live, uh, we're actually going to be exactly five years old. On oh, Monday. go you so, go! Uh, a big, uh, a big shout out to the Fintech Finance team down in Tunbridge. But uh, I'm, uh, I'm Ali Patterson. You will find us at pretty much every fintech event that hasn't been closed because of Corona. <laughs> <laughs> That's no fintech event. <laughs> uh, how about yourself, Alex? Uh, me or yeah. Starling? Um, All of the above. Well, please open a. Bank account was done. <laughs> oh, there wow. it is. That wasn't even a cheap plug. That was just like all the way. You'll find us on your phone. Yeah, just now, like... Do you employ spies is the question. <laughs> yeah. Never, never. Did a spy? No, I'm not even going to no. go there. I had questions about spies that I'm going to avoid. Matt, um, do you employ spies? No, wait. Uh, how can people find out more about you? Uh, no, we don't employ spies. But, um, well, you can come and find us. Uh, we've just opened a... Um, US website and we've uh, on our new domain curve.com so if people um, anyone in the US listening to this wants to sign up on a waiting list and uh, wait for curve to arrive on your shores then uh, you can do so there figure out what it's all about you, the credit card nuts over there and points junkies might be might be loving that yeah yeah we, we think curve's gonna land pretty well out there use your all your cards in one is a good idea. compelling proposition Adam, how about you? You got any spies? Uh, no spies. No spies, sadly. Um, or positively. Uh, 11fs.com, as ever. And um, if you're interested, AdamD8 on Twitter. Nice and short. And you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter. Email me directly, Simon at 11fs.com. What do you think of today's stories, people? Please, please let us know on any of the social platforms. Just search for Fintech Insider. Or, of course, email our team here at podcast at 11fs.com. Thank you for listening and goodbye for now.